Harry grunted his understanding and sank deeper into his seat, desperate to augment what little sleep he got at home, contending with two children of his own. There just never seemed to be enough time in the day. Sitting on the train, a part of Ed Tannery knew he'd made a mistake. The baby would never be this young again, and he would never get this time back. At the same time, he had responsibilities now. He had to make sure he provided for his young family. He took a photograph out of his jacket pocket and held it up. Amy stared out at him from the delivery room, sweaty and tired, but radiant. In her arms lay their newborn baby, only minutes old, still sticky and red and grumpy. Tannery put the picture back into his breast pocket and patted his chest. He closed his eyes as a tired smile spread across his face. He'd have a lifetime with them, he thought. Three rows ahead of Ed Tannery, Alhari al-Sadria sat with his eyes glued to the window, following the train's path parallel to the highway. He had short, neatly trimmed black hair, a thin mustache, and an olive complexion. Most people assumed he was Spanish, or perhaps Greek. In fact, Sadria had been born and raised in Tunisia on the shores near the ancient city of Carthage. As a boy, he'd played in the turquoise waters of the Mediterranean and watched the barbarians from Italy, France, and America claim the small African nation street by street, building by building, and family by family. It was there that he came under the influence of Nisar ben Mohammed Namur, an outspoken mullah who shared Sadria's contempt for Westerners. The great teacher had taken Sadria's adolescent disenchantment and molded it with care into a hatred that burned with blind passion. In 1996, Sadria had arrived in the United States as a 20-year-old college student ready to study computer science at Boston University. He graduated near the top of his class and earned a spot in a master's program at MIT. Upon receiving his degree, he turned down doctoral program offers from several top universities, choosing instead to enter the private sector. A large consulting company hired him and expedited the visa paperwork so he could stay in the country. In the two years since, he'd ridden the same train every morning. Never again, he knew. The call had come two weeks before. To anyone eavesdropping, the conversation with his old friend in Tunisia would have sounded innocent enough. They spoke of Sadria's family and the goings-on in his old seaside town on the Mediterranean. They talked about the top African and European football stars and the latest matches. They laughed about the times they'd enjoyed when they were boys and about the future. The conversation was so relaxed and natural that Sadria almost missed the signal. We're having an anniversary party. His friend said. Really? Sadria's breath caught in his chest. Yes, and we'd like you to join us. Sadria couldn't believe it. He'd waited so long to hear such instructions that he'd ceased to believe they'd ever come. His manufactured life in the United States had become his reality. He found himself unable to talk, and the pause on the phone was noticeable. Do you think you'll be able to make it? His friend's voice was still nonchalant, but Sadria could feel the urgency from half a world away. Buoyed by the importance of his task, Sadria found his voice. 
Of course, my brother. I'm already counting the moments until we can embrace each other again around the warmth of the desert fire. I know it'll be soon. With that, Sadria's course was set. Now the culmination of nine years of waiting and planning and thinking was at hand. Sadria looked up toward the front of the car at the young man in the bright blue uniform. He couldn't be more than twenty years old, and was of no concern. He was a member of the newly formed Massachusetts Transportation Safety Commission Guard Unit, which had been thrown together in haste when the American federal government blindly put up billions of dollars for states to use in developing homeland defense strategies. Fearful of losing out on the funding, politicians had fallen over one another to come up with pork-barrel schemes for improved security. The guard unit officers assigned to the transit rails were, Sadria knew, nothing more than window dressing. At the same time, the security wizards and political hacks had failed to recognize the real weaknesses in transport security. As a result, it had been child's play for Sadria to sneak into the rail yard at night and attach bundles of explosives to the bottom of each of the train's twelve cars. The hole he'd cut in the simple chain-link fence would be discovered later in the day, and the shouting and finger-pointing would begin. But by then, it would be too late. The explosives were set on a two-second delayed detonation sequence, running from the back car to the front, where he was. In his pocket he held the detonator that would start the chain reaction. He was amazed that his palm wasn't sweaty, and he took that as a sign from Allah that his cause was just and he would be rewarded. He found peace in his belief that he would indeed be reunited with his old friend soon. Sadria looked out the window again. The train had reached its top speed and was headed toward a sharp turn near Newton Corner. If his calculations were correct, each car would explode and separate in sequence, slipping the rails in a fury. Death would not be confined to the train itself. It would be carried off the tracks by each rail car, enveloping pedestrians, passing cars, and nearby buildings. It would be glorious. As the train entered the curve, Sadria took a deep breath and said a silent prayer. Then he flipped the switch. At first he thought there had been a malfunction and he feared he had failed his brothers at his most important moment. He lamented that he wouldn't be able to regain the respect of the movement, and that his place in heaven was no longer certain. He was deep in despair when he heard the first explosion. It was distant, coming from the rear of the train. Two seconds later there was another, closer this time. Then another, and another. His heart was filled with joy, as the explosions became deafening. The eleventh explosion rocked the car just behind his, and he was no longer able to contain his excitement. Allahu Akbar! He shouted at the top of his lungs. He was barely able to get the words out before the final explosion ripped through the train's front car, the fireball burning straight through his clothes and melting the flesh from his face, reducing it to an eternal grimace. Three rows behind, Ed Tannery had only a moment to grasp one final time at his jacket pocket, to feel the outlines of the photograph that held the image of his wife and their infant daughter. Chapter 1 August 
2006. Her body was found on a Sunday evening. It might have been discovered earlier, but floating in Boston Harbor, it blended in with the logs and tires and trash that spilled over from the city. She was the seventh, or so they thought at the time. Two weeks had passed since the sixth, and people were holding their breath, greedy in their anticipation. Not since the days when the Boston Strangler prowled his way across Beacon Hill had a singular fear so titillated New Englanders. She was found by a police officer, Officer Paul Stone, who stumbled on her almost literally. Twenty-two years old and fresh from the police academy, he spent his afternoons on foot patrol along the piers at the edge of South Boston, Southie, as it was known to the locals. It was a lousy assignment. Directly across Fort Point Channel from downtown Boston, the edge of Southie was lifeless on the weekends, particularly in the heat of late August. The Boston World Trade Center was deserted, as were the new convention center and the federal courthouse. Other than those outcast buildings, the area was dominated by warehouses, parking lots, and storage facilities, the majority of which were shut down on Sundays. Stone felt as if he were in some post-apocalyptic version of his hometown as he patrolled up and down the center of empty streets. He walked halfway across the abandoned Northern Avenue bridge at around seven o'clock. It was nearing dusk, and most of the lights were on in the skyscrapers in front of him. Many were of the fluorescent variety, beaming out unfriendly from office towers where the lights seemed to burn around the clock. But others glowed from apartment buildings, shimmering